Welcome back to Trojan Talk. I'm Ryan. I'm joined by Adam, as always. Adam, how are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm excellent. We have, uh, we have some fun stuff to discuss today, but uh, first, just a reminder, if you are not a subscriber to Trojansports.com, uh, now is a good time. Anytime is a good time, but now is a good time because we're going to be on the road most of May uh, tracking down recruiting stories, updates for the rest of this evaluation period, getting out to Texas and other areas where USC is recruiting heavily. So there's a lot of good stuff coming over the next month plus, uh, but really every month. So if you're not a member, sign up, trojansports.com, and uh, get all of our premium content. But for today, we are going to talk about, uh, well, we, we have a, a Q&A from the message board where our loyal readers and subscribers have posted some questions that we're going to touch on. But first, let's get into some topical uh, stuff with the NFL draft, which was last week, and a couple notable former Trojans who may have an idea of who they want to be the next head coach if a change is made. With that, let's start with the draft, Adam. Yeah. Any surprises to you? Did it go as you expected? What was your overall takeaway? It went about what I figured it would. In fact, I had a gentleman's bet with a friend of mine. Uh, He was certain that there would be a Trojan drafted before J3. And I was not so confident. And so, sure enough, Chuma Yoga slipped in there right at the end of the third round. I I lost. Uh, He won. But that's what I figured, that maybe a guy would go right at that point and, and really just meet one person. Uh, I paid Biggie Marshall as a fourth-round guy. That happened. And then, again, Marvell, fifth, Cam, sixth. My bigger surprise, not, not Chuma, but it would be that Port Augustine went undrafted. We knew that he was a late-round projection, and... The report that came out just before the draft that he had technically failed a PEDs test at the Combine. Uh, People can maybe take exception to that because it was Adderall, from what we understand, and Adderall is viewed by the NFL as a PED, but not by everyone. And also, according to the LA Times report, he had received an an exemption rather all use yeah after the fact and, and that's the thing like he, he failed it at the combine but then he received an exemption but he didn't cover the test and so it's kind of a technicality here that, that we're looking at but there are going to be question marks with, with Porter and, and I'm not trying to raise them uh, anyone that you talk to around USC has nothing but great things to say at the same time, you know, when I took, when I spoke with a former teammate, he said, you know, "I'm not surprised because you look at Porter and naturally you wonder, but you, you know that he's working really hard. It's not like he's just uh, a creation of of, uh, of I guess medicine, if you will, um, 
or supplements, he's regarded as the hardest working player on the team, you know, or in the program for some time. If if the test is for Adderall, that's that's not a muscle enhancer. That's that's a it's a stimulant, but it's not a that's not going to play into his physique or the stuff that makes him appealing to NFL scouts. Yeah, right. So it's complicated. It's tricky, uh, but there is that possibility that he would be facing a brief suspension to even begin his career. And, and that might have turned some people away or, or felt like they could just get him as a, an undrafted free agent, which he eventually signed with the New Orleans Saints. But uh, I guess the irony of it is that you look at this draft class and it, it was four guys and then you know, a handful of undrafted free agents. And I wouldn't be shocked if Porter ended up having a, a, a solid career and making as much of an impact as anybody else. Yeah, I, I was really surprised that someone didn't take a flyer on him in at least the seventh round there. It, the production was always there on the field. The injury concerns are present, but at that point in the draft, everyone has something. Like There are no perfect prospects in the seventh round. Of course, right. Um, and every team is constantly searching for past rushers. It's it's a, just a perennial need for everybody, and you have a guy who did it at a very high level when he was playing and was having his best season of his career this year, before he got hurt. You have a guy who who fits the mold size wise. He he is an NFL pass rusher in physique and build. So I I have to imagine that that may be the news that came out over the last week play the factor because otherwise I don't know why he doesn't get a, a flyer during the draft but as it stands I, I was reading the reaction from the Saints message boards and coverage there and uh, I, I guess he was a guy that was on the radar of, of many Saints fans in, in their mock drafts they, they thought they might target in the draft because they had a real need there and didn't really address it otherwise uh, so he's in, a, in an opportune spot to come in and maybe carve out a role in the rotation there uh, if he can impress in, in training camp and, and maintain a roster spot. It, it may have worked out well for him in terms of where he landed. Yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, you hope that for, for all of them, when I thought about it after the fact, you know, in, in real time, I thought, okay, this is what, this is what I figured. But then when I, when I started thinking more about Porter, when he was healthy, he had the most impact of any of these guys on, on USC. And that's not really even up for debate. I know he now has a reputation as being injury prone. That wasn't a problem for him his first two seasons. It it arose in his junior year, which he lost a, a, the majority of it, and then he played about half of last season. Yeah. And that's fair. I, I get why you would be scared off by that, or or you know not be confident in him in that way. But uh, to think that he just went undrafted. Uh, it's still kind of weird. It's still, I mean, it, again, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, I don't know if uh, if any of these guys will have a, a 10-year career. right? You, you wish that for them, but uh, I can't say that with confidence. In well, fact, just, I want to ask you, who, yeah. who do you – we, we raised the question uh, on our site, who will have the best NFL career. Who did you vote for? 
I voted for I. Th- <laughs> you don't remember. <laughs> that could go on. It, well, it does because going into the draft, I, I didn't have a clear sense for who would be the first guy off the board. From yeah. USC. Well, and, and, I thought Biggie so would I, go in the fourth, and I just figured that he would be first right there. He went second, but that's who I picked. I think that because of the position versatility, uh, I know that they're going to work in that safety. Uh, Korski can play corner too, and uh, just being able to command different spots in the defensive backfield. He goes to a team in the Baltimore Ravens who he seems to kind of be a natural fit for, his style, uh, his mentality. He's a really good tackler, probably underrated in that regard, doesn't get a lot of credit for it. I think that he'll probably find a home there and and stick around for a while there. So that's my yeah. pick. Well, I, he was my pick for to be first off the board, but again, I wasn't confident. I... It, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I kind of think that I could see Porter Gustin having a nice career, like, like you touched on. And just to close the book on him, obviously he was surprised because he posted on Instagram uh, a bit of self-reflection and, and maybe regretting playing through injuries as much as he did and, and trying to will himself to be on the field as opposed to uh, what well, I guess most guys would do is, is take the precaution and if something's wrong, give it the proper time to heal. That was never really his M.O. He, he wanted to be back on the field as soon as possible. And it, it was interesting to hear him kind of reflect on that in that Instagram post and, and maybe lament that in the long run that may have undermined him a bit. Yeah, in fact, okay, so you weren't here yet. It was 2017. And Porter came like right out the gates like gangbusters. In, in, in that season, and he was injured against Stanford, which was game two, and he should have just sat out. And it might have been just a week, I don't know, but he wanted to play against Texas because USC doesn't play Texas every year, and, and I think Porter just appreciated every game that he had in front of him. But it was clear that he was going to will himself to play in that game. And I remember... That week of practice, he didn't do anything, and I was convinced that he wouldn't play, not because I questioned him, but because I knew he was not healthy, and it would be detrimental. And I just figured, okay, they'll get through to him. He'll have to sit out this game. I know it's a big game, but he's just not going to be able to play. Well, he played. <laughs> he, he played on a, on a broken toe, and he messed himself up back. So he played half of that game. He played the first half. He actually played really well. He was pretty dominant, even with the despite the broken toe. But then he was out for about a month. Yeah. And then, and so that injury that he suffered, the re-aggravation, and it became a bicep as well. Um, he it wasn't going to keep him out for the season, but he rushed himself back again. I'm sure he was antsy. A month went by, and then he came back and played in about the middle of the season versus Arizona State, and got injured again, didn't make it through the game, and then he was out for the year. So he lost his whole season. I remember having this conversation with him afterward, and I was like, you know, if you didn't come back for that ASU game, do you think you probably come back for the end of the season, definitely by a bowl game, but maybe even, you know, for the, the final, you know, games in November, and and you're healthy. And he's like, yeah, you know, he kind of looked at me like, I don't want to admit this, and, 
and I don't want to regret what I did, but probably, right? And, and he never seemed to be back on track from there. I mean, obviously he had the offseason and he had ample time to, to heal, but you know he got injured in, in training camp in 2018, but remember he rushed back to play in the opener, right? It was like he had the knee injury, but he wasn't going to miss the game. And again, the the, uh, the timeline for what he suffered should have kept him out for at least a game, if not two. And I remember I reported four to six weeks because that's what his injury was. But he came back in about two and a half. <laughs> yeah, and, and also, though, so ultimately it's, it's the fracture of the ankle that ends his senior season. But before that, he had an ankle impingement. Yeah. And I, I recall him trying to explain to us after the Arizona game how he didn't think it could get any worse. It was kind of a pain tolerance thing. I, I, don't, I don't know if there's any coincidence there, but uh, you know, that's the thing we all lauded him about was that he, he always wanted to play. And, and he, he prioritized now. being out there to, to contribute to his team. But you know, ultimately, it, whether you're drafted, whether you're not drafted, if you land in a good spot and you prove yourself – that all becomes moot in the long run. And, and again, I, I do think the Saints are a good spot for him to latch on and and probably earn a role as a rookie and maybe kind of launch his career that way. Not not the way he envisioned, but could still work out just fine. Let's run through each of the other drafted guys, though, sure. just real fast. And um, You mentioned Chuma going late in the third round there to the Jets. And he was a guy that had a really hard time trying to project. I just didn't know how he'd be evaluated. And it was interesting that his comment after being drafted, uh, <laughs> he he said, point blank, he goes, I had a little bit of a rocky career at USC. Yeah. And, uh, and people that don't follow USC wouldn't really know that. Yeah, and, and, and he said the Jets were really just stressing that you have to turn over a new leaf and create a new you, and it's, you know, this is a professional job now. I've got to approach it differently on and off the field. It was, it was kind of a, a, a very candid comment from him and acknowledging that maybe he didn't reach his full potential at USC, which I know, I know is the way most fans felt. Yeah, and I didn't know where he would go either. I knew that some people would be high on him. I knew that there would be some good film that would, would draw people's eyes. I also knew that when they were going to look into him and start asking around and, and talk to whether it be staff members at USC or other people that were familiar with him, that there would be some negative that would come up there. And I, I'm guessing that there were some teams that probably didn't have him on their board or had him really low and other teams that really like him and just figured, okay, let's get him in our building. We can coach him. We can work with him. We can help him mature. Uh, well, he, so he's he, kind he, of like a, a boomer bus type of prospect. And you, you I, didn't, I didn't think that, that kind of player would go in the third round, but, but he did. You have to imagine, though, that the Jets got some input from Sam Darnold, who, who played with him. Yeah, I mean, uh, they wouldn't they wouldn't draft one of Sam's former teammates, not at least ask him about him. And, yeah, hey, what, what do you think about this guy? Yeah, and I have to think then that he got at least a favorable response there, or else they might have shot away. So I wonder if Sam relayed to them. I'm going to say he didn't, but the fact that Schuma declined to play left tackle for him, he didn't. I mean, he was they wanted him to play left tackle. They needed him to play left tackle in 2017. 
I mean, he could have played in 2018 as well. And uh, he turned it down. Yeah. And Sam was there for that. So uh, I'm going to assume that, that that part of the conversation never came up. Well, it, as I put in our, in our draft recap, it was the first time in 16 years that USC didn't have a guy in the first two rounds, which is a really impressive streak and one we knew was going to come to an end here. Um, but then the, the middle rounds picked up a little bit, and round four you have Biggie Marshall going to the Ravens. And it, it was interesting to hear their comments on why they drafted him. It wasn't so much that they had a pronounced need there. He was just the top player on their board at that spot. They actually have pretty good depth in the secondary. Thank you. Fe- yeah. Yeah. But, but, I, I know. I mean, I've, I've talked to some people uh, that were involved in his pre-draft process and as I, I put out there later, you know, the Patriots were really high on him. Bill Belichick flew out to USC just to meet with him, and they worked him out, and they saw him as, a, like I mentioned, a guy that can play nickel, play corner, play safety for them. Maybe doesn't have a home yet, but they felt confident could, could play different spots when needed. Uh, which is, I think, more and more valued right now in the NFL. Um, I, I recently did a, had an interview with Ravens safety Tony Jefferson, and he was telling me how, you know, the way they play defense, you know, he's asked to, to be in coverage a lot and plays a lot of man from the safety spot. And so that's someone that I suspect would maybe uh, take Biggie under his wing, if Biggie, especially if Biggie's going to play safety. Yeah, and, and so th- this was the quote from Ravens director of college scouting, Joe Ortiz. He was just the best player available on our board. I know it's a deep position for us, but this is a chance to add a quality player. Um, and he also mentioned that he's an outstanding tackler, which is something you highlighted there that really helped in his draft stock. Yeah, he, I feel like that guy never got brought up, but uh, he was very good at that. Dory was very good at that. Uh, that's something that you've seen from a few of USC's corners in recent years. And, and it's really important. Uh, it's, just, it's kind of an underrated thing. I, I think it's not as glamorous as interceptions. But uh, Biggie did a lot of things that, that help you. And I, I felt like people would get caught up and focus too much on the things that they felt hurt, that, you know, that, that hurt the team, like the, the penalties. Even though like, he did not really give up a lot of touchdowns, uh, he was not beaten deep. You know, people just do not blow by him the way that you would think, the way people talk about him. But uh, he, he was called for PIs. And that that's, I think, more of a Pac-12 problem than necessarily a biggie problem. Um, but we'll see how the Ravens use him. Yeah, and, and going back to, to USC's Pro Day, we kind of highlighted the storyline that as you mentioned, Biggie was getting looked at as a safety by a lot of teams. Um, again, how he ultimately ends up in Baltimore, we'll find out. But meanwhile, Marvell Tell, who was a safety for the Trojans, is getting looked at as a corner by some teams. And he's taken in the sixth round, or the fifth round, sorry, by the Indianapolis Colts. And they made it clear that that's where they want him to play, as cornerback. Yeah, that, that was interesting. Like, they didn't list him as defensive back. They already had the graphic-ready cornerback yep. <laughs> uh, so naturally you wonder were Marvell and Biggie playing out of position for USC what do you think 
I never had that thought. I, I, I further brought up by other people. Um, again, Biggie was uh, a major strength in that secondary this year. A secondary that had problems. I thought he was very, very good in the role he played. I, I, I never, I never thought of it in that way. But I, I can, I can see how if you break down the physical attributes of each guy and their skill sets, sure. But uh, yeah, that but didn't seem a, a paramount like, problem I, to me. I get that that wasn't you know an issue for you, but just take a side here. Do you think that they were playing the wrong position? Do you think Marvell should have been playing corner? Biggie should have been playing safety. Well, that's hard for me to say. I've never seen Marvell play corner, so I I, I don't know. <laughs> like, okay. corner is about more than your dimensions and your speed and everything else. Well, you've seen Marvell play. Yeah, but I haven't seen him play corner. So, I, right. I, for me to say definitively, yeah, he should, he should have been playing corner. I've never seen him play that position. I, I, I can't say that. Okay. I, what can you say? What I already said. Nothing. But feel free to offer your uh, a, a contrasting yeah, opinion I'll, here. I'll, I will. I think that they were exactly where they should be. Because this is college football, not the NFL. And and looking beyond USC's depth, I mean, if you move Biggie off a corner, who's playing corner for you? They they didn't they barely have cornerbacks. They barely have him now. They they barely had him when he was there. Uh, last year, I, I can't imagine that room without him in it. And I mean specifically at corner. But like I mentioned, he was not a liability downfield. He was not getting blown off and, and getting beat downfield repeatedly. The one play I remember this past season was Nikhil Harry making one of the catches of the year in college football, one that you saw played over and over and over on NFL Network and ESPN because that was Nikhil Harry's you know greatest catch. And it, it was just a, such an acrobatic play. It wasn't an indictment of Biggie Marshall. But I think he played really good corner for most of the time. And I think that the uh, perception has kind of outweighed the reality there with him. But no, I think that uh, for him to, to play safety where, you know, he he wasn't he wasn't necessarily experienced and prepared and, uh, and suited for coming out of high school would have been the, the mistake. Well, see, now, now here I thought after all that badgering, you were going to disagree with me. But uh, we're on the same page. No, you, you didn't say what I said. You just said, "Hey, whatever they get is cool." No, I, I said he was a ma- he was a major asset to a secondary that had a lot of questions. Yeah. He, he, uh, the, well, the other side, the back was, was, was me, a complete let disaster. On, let me add on about Marvell because uh, I did see him in coverage. I didn't like him, and even though he had the build that you would like, uh, maybe would remind you of the maybe some of the taller corners that you see that you know that Pete Carroll has employed in Seattle. I thought he was really bad in one on one periods, uh, and just in coverage in general, uh, when I would see him in the practice field. And, and when when they moved him there. I mean, he did take some reps there on occasion, uh, more so even like maybe in summer workouts. But I, I never thought he was strong there. And, and he, as a free safety, I mean, he was not a ball hawk. And, and I just don't think that you would have gained a lot from him at corner at USC. Now, in the NFL, I understand. I understand how his size and his measurables maybe would, would play better there in the NFL. Uh, 
and, and maybe it'll work out as they try to convert him. You know, I don't really know what to make of him as an NFL prospect. I'm not as high on him or as confident in him sticking around. But I, rooting I guess, for him nonetheless. I guess the point I was trying to make is that, to me, cornerback <clears throat> is a very instinctual position. And if, if you recall Pro Day, no one tested better than Isaiah Langley. In almost every category, he, he was the most impressive tester among USC's players, and yet we saw what happened on the field last year. Well, Marvell didn't really do much at, at Pro Day. He, he had done a lot of the combine and tested it through the roof. Uh, Biggie had already run his 40 and, and ran that better than I think most people thought he would at 4-5-3. So Isaiah Langley was just there because he wasn't at the combine. So he had to do everything at Pro Day. There were a few people that were that, that was their combine. But for yeah, Biggie and Marvell, that, that wasn't really an important day. No, I understand that. But I'm saying if you looked at his raw metrics and the, the numbers, you, you would think that, man, this guy is, is very well suited for the position. And he didn't have a great year. So it, it's, it's, it's about more than the profile. It's, it's about yeah, the, the instincts sure. and, and, and the comfort the guy has playing that spot. And that's why, however anyone else might have projected Big E and said maybe he's a better fit here – I never thought that because I, I thought he played the position well and, and, he, and he had the instincts for it. Yeah, well, as a good tackler, I think he'll, he'll probably work out at safety if that's what he transitions to. It, it's going to take some time. I don't think he's ready to play safety right now. With Marvell, I, I thought he was actually a very inconsistent tackler, and I think that showed up in film. And that's maybe why they want to move him off of safety and have him play corner. As I think about it, I just kind of want to restate the point I made earlier in trying to answer your question. You know, I, I never once heard the discussion about Biggie and Marvell and how they should switch, really until Pro Day, until it was a talking point and everyone said, oh, it's been talked about for years. Because watching this team this year, I never had a reason to think that. I, I saw how, what's the word, susceptible, vulnerable, inconsistent, erratic the cornerback play on the other side of the field was that I never once watched Biggie Marshall play and thought, man, he's out of position. Was, he was kind of a saving grace for them in, in the grand scheme of things there. And the point I was trying to make, though, is that I've seen cornerbacks that fit the prototypical mold, that have the size, the speed, the metrics, the, the fast twitch, everything you want, but don't have a feel for the position. And if you don't have the feel, then – you end up never turning around for the ball. You end up committing uh, penalties all the time. I know that was a knock against him, but but still, on the whole, he had a pretty solid season for USC. So I, I never watched him play and thought, man, this is not his position. Because I saw what it was compared to on the other side of the field. Um, and I brought up Isaiah Langley as an example. Even if you factor in the scouting combine numbers of Biggie and Marvell and the guys USC sent, his stats from Pro Day, his metrics ranked as well as anyone USC was was graduating in, in this class. And yet we saw on the field, this is not the pick on Isaiah, but we saw on the field it never materialized. So to me, that position is just about so much more than that raw data or, or what you look at someone and perceive they should be. So uh, that's why, to me, that storyline was never on my radar, I guess, going through this season. Very interesting kind of... Uh switch going on for those guys and uh, moving beyond that you had Cam Smith going to the Vikings you have any takeaways on that? Um, 
Yeah, he said that throughout the process, he kind of had a sense that the Vikings might be the place where he landed. He felt that their defensive scheme was very similar to what he's done at USC, and that it would be a seamless transition. Um, obviously, we know that the major selling point with Cam was that he's a very heady player, a very strong football IQ. When I talked to him at Pro Day, I asked him, what's the question you get most from teams and he goes it's kind of about my football IQ and the, the way I prepare for a game and, and go through a game week and everything I going back to your original question of who's gonna have the best career I, I could make a case for almost every one of these guys I, I can certainly make a case for Cam uh, just assimilating very well at the next level and and being a smart steady player is in the right spot and because of that finds uh, a role for himself in this league for a long time you know, I don't know if he's going to be a star, but I, there's, I, I think he can be a solid role player for many years. So maybe he has a higher floor than the yeah. other guys, you think? Exactly. Okay, yeah, I, I can see that. I'm, I'm not really believing that, that it'll, it'll really happen. Um, I always liked the way he played at USC. He just kind of seemed to hit a ceiling really early. I, I mean, some people remember his freshman year as maybe his best season. I, I don't think that's true per se, but he had the, the big game where he caught, you know, he got three interceptions versus Utah, and it kind of seemed like he was living off of that for a long time. And, uh, and a reliable guy, great locker room guy, brings a lot of intangibles, but this is the NFL. <laughs> so you, you, there's a certain level of, I think, of, of talent and athleticism and ability that's needed. I mean, I think back to someone like Matt Grudigood, who was remarkable at USC and, and All-American and, and one of the core members of the early part of the Pete Carroll dynasty. Not an NFL player. Cam was not Matt Grudy good. And yet, you know, playing inside linebacker, not a, a super athlete, and I, I just don't... I have a hard time seeing him uh, playing long in the NFL. No, it, it was... Yeah, this is a you know this is a lesser draft class than what we've seen at USC in oh, past for sure. years. For sure. Yeah, it's hard to know if uh, if a lot of these guys will will play very long, but um, this is their dream, and so I, happy for them that they got drafted. And uh, and you like I think you made a good point earlier that a lot of it will come down to situation and. It's impossible to know right now for any of them exactly if they're in the right situation, but that's what you hope for is that they're in a good situation where they're in position to carve out a role and win playing time and get on the field and and show something. And, and maybe they do something with this initial team, but it catches the eye of someone else on another team and it works out for them down the line elsewhere. That's yeah, possible. yeah, and, and building off that, I think in that regard, I think all four guys ended up in good situations. But um, we don't know. How do we know that? Well, well, we well, no I'm, I'm going to expound on my point here. All if right, you want me to talk, 
Okay. So, so with Cam, it wasn't like the Vikings took a flyer on him. He mentioned that they were very involved with him throughout the whole process. That they liked him throughout. He was on their board. It wasn't where they got to the fifth round and said, "Okay, who's left?" So the fact that they identified him as someone they wanted um, is, is a good sign for him. With Marvell, the Colts have become maybe have developed the best reputation in the last two years of drafting and, and talent evaluation. Uh, they've gotten a, a really good reputation with their new GM of, of picking guys that fit their system and, and that can plug in and play. So based on that, if you're trusting just the team knowing what it wants and who fits that, that's a good sign for him. With Biggie, if he's going to make the transition to safety, he's coming into a spot where he doesn't have to necessarily play a huge role right away. They are deep in the secondary, and they mentioned that they see him uh, getting some run on special teams at the, at the very least early on. So he has time to develop there if he's going to ultimately be a long-term safety. He, he has the time to work at it where it doesn't have to come right away. They're not counting on him right away to be anything. So for those reasons, I think all those are all good spots for those guys. Now we'll see what happens. I don't know for sure, but that's just my logic on that. Yeah, no, I think it's very logical. Um now, if, if we're talking like a college football roster, I think your points are even more relevant. I do feel like in the NFL, you don't want there to be a lot of depth where you're at because they can just cut you in a moment's notice. And except, except it's hard. It's hard the, to make. It's hard to make teams. There's always a place for for a special teams standout, and the, the Patriots have always had those two or three guys that don't fit into the offense or defense in a major role, but are on the roster for year after year because they they make plays on special teams. And if the Ravens are singling out Biggie as a guy they think is going to be a great fit on special teams, that's going to buy him some time. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I hope so. I, I mean, rooting for him, I, I was hoping he would go to New England, in fact because uh, knowing that they were really interested in him, but they actually drafted defensive backs earlier in the draft, which when that happened, I kind of figured that it might not be happening for him in New England. But these yeah. are, for the most part, all late-round guys outside of Chuma. And uh, we'll just see. You know, the, I mean, Rojo last year went in the second round and is now looking like he his future is... It's not long for a Tampa Bay. Yeah, and, and everyone it, it, and everyone thought that like, oh well, that's just a great fit because they don't have a league back and he's ready to go and he's ripe and he might be a star and might be a great rookie. He didn't play. Like, we have no idea. It is unpredictable, but especially yeah, if, if you're in the back half of the draft, there there really is um, little guarantee. There's there. There's not a whole lot of time to prove yourself, so you have to hope you're in a good spot coming out because the turnover in those rounds is pretty high. Let me just close on the draft talk with this. Are there any other of the undrafted free agent guys that you think have a chance to stick? Mm. And, and we can go over a few of those. Jenny Harris went to the Eagles. Uh, Chris Brown landed with the Rams. Malik Dorton, I believe it was with Oakland. Um said where got a, a camp invite which is you know even less guaranteed than an undrafted free agent deal yeah well we said where because he's solid in every way right he doesn't have any 
take maybe real exciting traits, but uh, he's workmanlike and at least average to above average in, in I think in most facets of the game. I think that he could probably work his way onto at least like the practice squad and we'll see what happens from there. Chris Brown, I thought, was probably USC's, if not best lineman last year, their most consistent. And I could see him, you know, in, in yeah, it's a third stringer maybe. That, that's probably as far as I'll yeah. go. Yeah, uh, the problem for, for said is that there's just so much running back depth throughout the league. Yeah. Everyone has a handful of running backs, and it's a it's a really hard spot to crack if you don't come in with some stature uh, based on your draft status. He he kind of reminds but, me of C.J. Gable, uh, who many of you will remember from about a decade ago, from you out of USC. I think that uh, you know C.J. Gable actually made a a really nice home for himself in the CFL. Been been a bit of a star there, and I can see where maybe doing something like that and playing professionally elsewhere, but doing pretty well. Well, uh, transitioning to a couple other former Trojans who did play in the league, uh, Matt Leinart and Reggie Bush had I've some... I've heard of them. Yeah, I have too. Had some interesting comments about maybe the future of USC football or what they'd like to see the future be. Um, Adam, what was your takeaway of hearing those two prominent alumni alums mention Urban Meyer as a guy they'd like to see coaching this program soon. It was probably music to a lot of people's ears. I personally didn't care for it because I think it's pretty disrespectful to the current head coach of USC. Now, Reggie wouldn't have a relationship with Clay Hilton for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. But Matt Leiner does. And I just find it to be unnecessary, really, to, I guess, nominate the, the next coach. While this one already, we, we all know, is on shaky ground and will likely be let go if he had another season like 2018. So I don't understand how productive it is to to talk about that in the media right at this point, especially right now in April, right? It'd be one thing if it were November and USC is, you know, in the midst of another losing season and all, all signs point to Clay Helkin being fired in the coming weeks. That, that's a whole different context. But uh, why? why? Why talk about this? Once again, Adam, we agree today. We we are we are in lockstep on a couple of things. It, it doesn't accomplish anything right now. It this is a, a very interesting time for USC football on a number of levels. One being recruiting, where they're already battling an, an uphill fight here with the fact that everyone views Clay's status as very tenuous, and they're having to combat against that. They're having to combat against coming off a of last season. And if you're if you already have high profile former players speculating on the next head coach, that's not going to help in that regard at all. And I, I think the point you made is is right. If if it's if this is November, if they're in the midst of another five and seven season, and it seems 
inevitable, it seems like, okay, this ha- just has to happen now, then sure, that's different. But the program has made a commitment to stick with Clay Helton for this season or going into this season, and there's no need to undermine that from the start now that it's been made. I mean, you can disagree with it. I know most fans do disagree with it. But, Probably. But that's the way they're going into the season. So I, unless your end game is, is you don't want things to go well, then it, it just there's, there's no point in talking about it right now. Well, you know what tells me? They get qualified by saying if USC's having another bad season, they'll start recruiting Urban Meyer. They're recruiting him now. That's what's really happening. They're not waiting. Why would they wait? If they're willing to just say this on the record in April, that's because they're already doing it. And in one respect, I'm not surprised that this is already in motion. The moment that Urban Meyer stepped down, and I'm talking like the day of, of course. that he stepped down, the conversation that I was having with other people uh, on the beat, and, and not not publicly, but I'm sharing it now, is, okay, well, we know where he might go next. In fact, I, I, was, I was also talking to uh, a, a diehard fan of Ohio State who's from the, you know, from that area, from Cleveland, and uh, he too was like, I could totally see Urban Meyer going to USC. That, that just makes sense for yeah. him to, to take another break and, and just relax a little bit and kind of regroup. We've seen him do it before. But Urban Meyer is not going to coach at a program that can't win a national title. And there are only maybe a dozen or so that you can be confident in that have the either the infrastructure or the talent base um, or the, the, the position, the situation to do that. And while USC might be lacking the infrastructure, the talent is there, the, the resources are there, and they're in the Pac-12, which is uh, screaming for an elite coach to just come in and, and win. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a conversation that everyone was having. The minute he stepped down to Ohio State, I don't think there's very high confidence or belief that he's done, no matter what he said in his press conference. He's uh, too good and too young. Yeah, so everyone expects that there's going to be a, another act to, this, to his career, and the point you just made is the point. There's only so many landing spots for him, and when you project what might be open or what, might, what not might be open, most of those aren't going to be available. So there, there's there's very few scenarios to peg him in for a comeback, other than a power program that's won national titles, that's coming up a five and seven season with a head coach that everyone is wondering about. Does he make it through through this 2019 season? So that conversation was happening immediately the minute he stepped down, and I'm sure it'll, it'll ratchet up if things don't go well this fall. But I, I yeah. just I just don't know that there's any value in, in discussing it right now. Just going back to, well, the, to the comments. I, I'll tell you what, though. It was interesting that the LA Times reached out to Urban Meyer for a comment to, <laughs> to pair with the comments uh, uh-huh. from Liner. And, and he, didn't, he didn't just say, oh, that's, that's outrageous. I'm done. He, he even said, well, I, I, I've learned just to, just, just to live in the moment and, and take it a day at a time. 
or, or whatever right. he said. So it, it was no. not it was not a uh, a dismissal uh, by any regard. Yeah, in in my mind, if you if you were creating a hot board, which we're obviously not doing at this moment, but Urban Meyer would be my betting favorite to eventually replace Clay Helkin, uh, you know, if that scenario were to play out. And another one of the main reasons why I could actually see him coming to USC is because he gets burned out and he's under a lot of stress in his previous stops. USC is going to be a much more low-key situation than it was in Gainesville or in Columbus. And while the expectation would be to win a national title, it just wouldn't come with the same amount of scrutiny and, and the day-to-day pressure that he's been dealing with previously. Uh, no, that's, that's a good point. It's a fair point. I, I do wonder, though, and we all saw Urban dealing with the, the headaches and the stuff during the games late in the season. I wonder, though, if he never gets suspended for the whole stuff last offseason if – or in a different spot. I, I just feel like that really kind of soured him on the situation there and maybe uh, brought everything to a head more quickly. So, and, and again, that's the reason why I do think he's going to be coaching somewhere uh, in a year, two years max. I, I can't see him be out of the game for more than two years. So I guess it depends on what happens at other places, including here. But I, I think it's a fair point that this is probably a softer landing spot than the uh, 24-7 scrutiny he he got his previous stops. Yeah, I think it would be an ideal situation for him if it becomes available. But for, I mean, Reggie and Langell, uh, excuse me, Langell, for Reggie and Matt to publicly undermine Helkin, uh, I don't, I don't really like it. I don't, I don't think they need to do it. Given, given their stature and, and where they come from and, and representing that program. I, I think it, so, what it does speak to though is, is the frustration that exists among alumni of this program that want to see sure. it back to where it was. And I guess if you're, if you're asked a question and you do have that feeling inside you that this is not what USC football should be, then I can see how that comes out. But I just don't think it's productive at this point. I mean, they, they're media savvy. They're in the media. They know what they're doing. Like, they're getting that snowball rolling publicly. And man, it didn't really, it didn't really need help. It didn't really need their help, but uh, there, it just kind of turns the tide even more against Clay Helkin, which I, I find unnecessary. Yeah, the, the reality is though, that there is very little margin for error this fall, and especially early this fall. And I just, I go back to to the recruiting factor. Um, it, a lot hinges on on that first month. And just and where things stand, it's going to be really interesting. You know, in college football, every game matters to teams that are trying to compete for national championship. Every game matters to USC for reasons beyond that. Um, so it's going to be a very, very interesting fall for many reasons. Well, I've always wondered about recruiting and, and how it's affected or impacted by this because obviously it would be. But I would think that there would be some prospects who, if they saw a sinking ship but knew that there would be uh, a changing of the guard would be more drawn to the program than they otherwise were if the coach would be retained. 
Yeah, but you don't know how that next coach is going to feel about you. And and all these guys want to go somewhere where they feel totally comfortable with the support system around them, and, and they feel loved, and they feel, this guy's got, got my back. You don't want to go into anything with uncertainty because you don't know how yeah. that next coach feels. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it would depend on, on who it would be. A lot of times coaches are replaced by other active coaches. Um, in this scenario, it would be by someone who has not been involved in their most recent recruitment, you know. Yeah. So let's segue to some questions from our board, our premium message board, Trojan Talk, which is also the name of the podcast that you're listening to. And if you're not a member of the website, subscriber, trojansports.com, um, that's one of the things you're missing out on, but you can rectify that at any time and join up. Uh, we opened the, the board up to some questions that people wanted to have us dissect in this podcast. But I'm also going to use this occasion to drop a second promo because we've had so much good stuff recently. I just feel it needs to be uh, put out there a little bit more. Adam right now is going back and breaking down every position from spring practice with grades, where that position group ranked on the team, uh, kind of refreshing the outlook for that group heading into 2019. And it's really the most thorough and uh, best analysis you'll get on – going in-depth on each position spot and what we learned from the spring. So check that out. We're, we're almost halfway through that. We've talked a bunch about our USC Next Up series. We had one of our, our better ones last week with Drake Jackson, who was, of course, the talk of the spring. Uh, went in-depth with him and his family, kind of about his, uh, his path at this point. And he had one of the more interesting national signing day or early signing day decisions and, and lead-ups and uh, got some great details about how that process played out and um, also some of the stuff that you know the coaching staff was telling his dad this spring after they got to see him play so that look for that and right now we're really hitting the recruiting season hard today we had updates from Adam Gorney on Elias Ricks and Dorian Green Warren I had a story on Justin Flo I went out to visit Monday night and like I mentioned at the top, I'm about to be on the road for most of May tracking down recruiting content from all over the uh, the West Coast and uh, Texas. So join up, trojansports.com. And on that message board, you will find this thread with the questions we're about to go over right now. All right. I'm ready. Okay. First question from the board comes from ScootWag11. Does or has Helton ever sent his staff to places like Clemson, Bama, UGA, like Cristobal did with his staff, to try and copy successful teams? Not to my knowledge. <laughs> I don't have yeah. anything there. I'm not, I'm not aware of that, no. And I'd have to lean on you for that because you've been around much longer, but you think that's something you would hear if it happened. It, I feel like that, that normally happens, though, with – with smaller schools going to the big schools to learn? It depends on what you're doing. I mean, maybe like the type of offense you're trying to employ, but given that they brought in this coordinator who has his offense and he has a a specific version of it, they're not going to send anybody to like Wazoo, right? I mean, obviously that's a competitor anyway, but uh, I don't know where they would go. Do uh, you think Clancy's going to go somewhere <laughs> to, to learn more about defense? Yeah, I, I just think it's it's kind of rare overall, though, for a, a power program to go visit another power program because ostensibly they're, they're all competing for the same prize. 
at the end of the season. But where you find that is is when you have a a Mac program going to visit Louisville to learn something from Bobby Petrino when he was there or something like that. So, no, we have not heard anything like that happening with Helton or his staff. Jack53 says, Time to stir the pot. Watched some North Texas footage and noticed while Mason Fine did not run a great deal, he does have a quick twitch that helped him elude and escape the pass rush. Do you anticipate our O-line will provide the pocket presence necessary for a less mobile QB like JT? Everything that I got from from, from spring was that this offense is actually designed for someone that can, I mean, can throw the ball over the field, but it won't really matter if they're mobile. It, it's kind of insurance for that. They, they don't, in fact, by the end of it, Harrell was uh, a little openly frustrated with JT and Jack and really the group for not getting the ball out quicker. But he's not relying on their mobility and he's not really championing it. And, yeah, to build off that, the reason he's not is because he doesn't want them holding on to it long enough to even think about running. He, he wants them to scan the field and find the open grass, as he says, find that first guy that's open and make the pass. I, I mean, when, when we've uh, hammered home the point this spring that this is a simple offense, it really is a simple offense. And whenever someone asked JT, uh, was there anything that surprised you about the offense once you went through it? And then he goes, he answered this question a few times the same way that he would say, yeah, that, that, that really is that simple. That, there really is not anything more to it. It's, it, it's that straightforward and simple. Um, so the whole key for Graham Harrell is, is pace and quick decisions. And if you're making quick decisions, the line doesn't have to protect that long. And it kind of mitigates whatever weaknesses may still be there. Yeah. Now, to answer your question, in the event that the starting quarterback is not getting the ball out quicker, we don't know yet. We, we I couldn't tell you if the O-line is uh, game for that, right? I mean, it's going to be a pretty young, inexperienced group. Austin Jackson is a, a one-year starter going on year two, but then Elijah Vera Tucker is a new starter who we like, but is new nonetheless. Brett Meelan is a new starter. Andrew Voorhees is somewhat of a two-year starter, but has struggled. And and then if Jalen McKenzie is the right tackle, he would be new. Or we're anticipating a competition there with Drew Richmond, the grad transfer from Tennessee, who it won't be new. He'll he'll have he has more experience than actually anybody uh, in this entire group, but we're still learning about him. And I think this is the kind of offense, again, that is kind of designed to neutralize how good your pass protection is. So I would suspect that it probably would hold up enough for this offense. Assuming the quarterbacks can, can play at the pace and operate right. as quickly as possible. It's going to come down to the quarterback more than the O-line then, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um. CJ had a different variation of our previous question. Uh, do other coaching staffs visit Helton and USC to copy their philosophy? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know if he was asking us or asking our, our fellow subscriber, but uh, <laughs> I think people will with, with Graham Harrell. I think people want to mimic what he's doing. 
That's just what I'm assuming will happen. Yeah, it, you know, and again, it, it normally happens when someone is doing something ahead of the curve or unique or they have a certain expertise and with a certain style. Um, when the West Coast or when the spread offense was, uh, was really emerging in college football, the forebearers of that style were frequently visited by all kinds of programs who want to learn more about it and didn't have people in-house with any experience in it. People who would come up in totally different uh, offensive styles and the only way for them really to learn was to go and be hands-on and, and learn from different coaching staff like that. Um, if if Harrell's version of the air raid becomes uh, what many hope it can here, and again, it, it is nuanced from Cliff Kingsbury and Mike Leach, so it's very possible that he, he may be a popular uh, off-season lecturer to other staffs. Okay. USC Ether asks, on an unbridled enthusiasm scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being 5 and 7, and 10 being New Year's Day Bowl, where do each of you stand after watching Spring Ball? Or will Spring Ball be fool's gold once again? I'll go first. I take exception to the final question there about it being uh, fool's gold, because I don't think I've ever provided that I've been back on the beat now for five years I covered team for a long time even well before that during championship years and just more recently I, in 2015 I remember like USC was going to be ranking the top 10 largely because they were returning their redshirt senior quarterback who I thought was nationally overrated and a head coach who I didn't really believe in, but he was going into year two of implementing what he was there, whatever he was doing. So I don't remember selling USC as a national title contender in 2015. In 2016, I definitely wasn't because there was a quarterback competition between two guys that hadn't played, and I could see it going one way toward you know leaning toward a, a player who I thought was less talented than the younger player and so we didn't really know what to make of that season except the fact that they had a really hard schedule in September and sure enough they began one and three 2017 I know that the conversation was all about national championship because they were returning Sam Darnold who was the Heisman front runner uh, even then I I figured they would be a 10-11 win team but I was not selling them as, you know, an undefeated champion. And then last year, we were waiting for the quarterback that wasn't there because uh, it was evident that the guys that they had there, uh, Jack Sears and, and Matt Fink, were unremarkable at that point. And they did not have a strong spring. And we figured that JT would probably come in and if he was about as good as advertised would win the job, which is what happened. So I really don't remember selling false hope with USC, but I realized that I'm not the only one covering this team. So uh, USC Ether, you're one of my favorites. Stop reading the wrong people. (laughs) (laughs) So scale of one to 10, uh, what's your, your unbridled enthusiasm level? Uh, they're, they're a better team. I 
don't know how much better of a record they'll, they'll have because they have a harder schedule on paper. And, and that's all I can say right now because, you know, it, it is April. We ultimately don't know how good Washington will be or Notre Dame, BYU, Utah, Fresno State. That early part of the schedule is not fun. But what if a lot of them, what if they underachieve? Or what if they're overrated? Oregon is another team that will probably come in with a lot of clout. They're going to be playing Coliseum. Right now, if you're, if you're projecting that game, Oregon would be the favorite. But by the time they actually meet, you know, midway through the season, later in the season, we have no idea. So that's why it's really hard to, like, give a, like a, a record right now. I just feel like we're too far out. But I'm enthusiastic about their, their progress, about having more of an identity on offense, um, having, a, a, I think, a, a better front seven on defense, which I think is more valuable in college football, even though, of course, I, I'm scared of the defensive backfield. But if the front seven is that much better, then I think it can make a difference. In fact, I mean, last year, we, ta- we talked about Port Augustine earlier, but he was a, p- a big part of that front seven. And when he went down, the defense was different. And they never really recovered from his absence. And, and so if they have a better front seven, I think it can, it can mean that they have a better defense. So if you want a number in terms of, like, like he mentioned, between five and seven and New Year's Day Bowl, uh, I feel confident putting them back in a bowl game. I'm not putting them in a New Year's Day Bowl, but, you know, maybe I'm going to put them at, like, seven. That's my. That's where I land mm. on the enthusiasm scale. Yeah, well, you, you kind of beat me to it. I was going to say a six and a half or a seven, and here's what I do believe and what I do buy in. The offense was a mess last year, and it cost them a number of games. No matter how frustrated people are with Clancy, if the offense was a tick better, uh, they win eight in, games in in every game. They win it, eight it, games. It's a different season. Yeah, completely it's, agree with you. It's a different offseason, even perhaps, uh, in, in some regards. So I am confident that this is going to be a competent offense that knows what it wants to do and that takes advantage of the immense talent that is still there uh, all around the skill positions. That alone gives me enthusiasm that I confidently believe in. The defense, I really don't know what to make of it because, again, we didn't really see it in any version of itself this spring um i did like some of the stuff i saw with the front seven i did like some of the guys uh who emerged a little bit um but my concerns about the secondary are 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 very pronounced and we just don't know what any of these guys coming in august are going to do we just have no clue and while i agree with your point adam that a great front seven and a great pass rush really mitigates that. Um, I, st- I still just don't know how good or bad or vulnerable it's going to be. So I- I'm really in the dark on the defense, which is what compromises my overall number. So six and a half to seven is my enthusiasm scale. But I think there's a wide range of possibilities that can happen next year. All right. All right. Jerry Bed, another of our 
favorite posters. Uh, are either of you hearing any rumblings regarding the impact Dr. Foltz will have on the Heritage Hall? Ryan? Uh, I, I'm not hearing any rumblings. Um, I, 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 would, I would assume that until she's formally installed, it's, it's all guesswork and conjecture. Yeah. I've heard little things. Uh, and a couple weeks ago, I was told that Lynn Swan had, had fi- found out through the grapevine that it would be frowned upon if he had attended the Masters. And we were all very surprised that he was not there. I remember I bumped into him on that Thursday, uh, day one. Of, of that tournament and I <laughs> I was taken aback that, and I just kind of looked at him like hey like what are you doing here and I, he was cool about it I don't know if he appreciated that because I'm questioning his uh, commitment I guess but he's like I'm I'm working I'm like okay you know and I just respected that and moved on but uh, you had to wonder why I mean out of all weekends to to be at USC, it was it was kind of a you know a quiet weekend at USC, and it was a big weekend elsewhere. But uh, I mean, that's kind of where he's at. Where maybe if uh, he handled things differently at different points in the year, it wouldn't be a big deal at all for him to just be there. But maybe it was something that he had to give up to uh, to shed a different light on on what he's doing. So. Uh, from what I understand, you know, he he has something to prove to the new president. But that's really it. I, I haven't heard much more than that. As a quick aside, building off that, this is a bit of a tangent, but that weekend, I forget which, which sport it was, but one of the spring sports programs made a point to uh, make a big deal on Twitter about Lynn Swan being at their events. And right. another reporter on the beat mentioned to me, isn't that what all athletic directors do? <laughs> yeah. And they're there. Yeah. So it's it, it's not an event when they're there. But that, that's that's playing off kind of what you were saying about maybe he was encouraged to be more of a presence. Um, just going off of um, logic and and common sense or whatever, I I, I would assume that. She's taking on a lot when she takes over. And I wouldn't expect any rash movements and changes. I think there's an evaluation period. I mean, certainly she's preparing now. She's studying. She's getting an understanding of what she's inheriting and coming into. But I think a leader in that position is going to want to see for themselves how things run, how things look, how things operate before doing anything, unless there's such a groundswell of impetus from influencers of the university to do something. But I, I would not imagine that there will be a, a day one uh, noticeable change. Yeah, I, I don't know yet. Like, we've got to meet her. All right. Kyler Keener. You know, it's actually Kyle R. Keener. You know, I've he, always wondered that. He's I've so always polite. That. He he brought it up once before, and then kind of lets it go. And everyone just calls him Kyler. Uh, it, it's Kyle. 
I've, I've only met one Kyler in my life, but if I hadn't met him, I probably wouldn't have even jumped to that conclusion. Because I do know a Kyler. It yeah, just, did you just play quarterback for the Arizona Cardinals? Well, I, I haven't met him. Okay. So, but that's a fair point. I guess that would put it on my radar, too. Anyways, Kyler Arkeener, another, another of our favorite posters. Did you just uh, call him Kyler again? No, I said Kyler Arkeener. Ah, you can go quickly. We need to make sure that we enunciate really well here. Well, you know, we have a lot of practice of that now with uh, our new defensive line coach here and, and, <laughs> and some other testing names. So, uh, anyways, the question uh, was directed to a member of the staff who's not on the podcast. Uh, the infamous Rick could not make it today. <laughs> But we'll take the question anyway. Uh, what do you expect from Drew Richmond? Do you think he starts? What position does he play? Any analysis on his play at Tennessee? Uh, it's, it's a great question, and I wish that I had watched more film so far. I did reach out to a buddy of mine who covers Tennessee uh, to try and get an analysis. I have not gotten one yet, but I'll post that on the board when I do uh, from someone who's watched him play. You know, I, I'll tell you this, through the process, after he came for his first visit and was firmly on the radar, I know USC really, really wanted him and also really thought they needed him. That They thought he was a kind of a vital piece to their offseason plan. Um, so I expect he gets a full chance to compete for that right tackle job, which is where he played at Tennessee. He made, what, what was it, 25 starts there? It was something yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, in the SEC, I, you don't you don't start that long without being a certain level of capable. Um, but I'm also surprised that a guy that was entrenched as a starter in previous years would be leaving, and, and we don't know maybe what the situation was going to be going into this year. So uh, I will hear back from our Tennessee source and uh, post more on the board about him and, and kind of what the thought coming out of Knoxville is. But I, I do know that when USC was recruiting him, they were very hopeful uh, they would land him. And this was brought up on the board earlier. I answered it because you didn't see it. Someone asked, uh, how did he find his way to USC? Um, one of the USC's recruiting staffers, Trey Johnson, oh, he's had, been really at, good. had been at Tennessee previously. And, and help recruit him there to Tennessee. So they had a previous connection that kind of opened the door to things in terms of uh, getting him to, to look at USC and really consider it. Uh, I, I know at one point that Texas was on his radar. Uh, that, Drew's been very quiet through the whole process, though. I managed to get him on the phone right after he visited here. Uh, I kind of just cold called, and I think he picked up not knowing who it was, and we talked for a few minutes. But I haven't been able to get back through to him again. I haven't seen him talk to anyone else, so I don't know a whole lot about his process beyond just that connection he had with Trey Johnson here. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll definitely follow up on that as we get more intel from the, the Knoxville folks, because I'm very curious myself what they're getting. Well, his background is at both left and right tackle most recently, he started at right tackle all of last year, but the previous year, he started about half the year, and he was at left tackle, which is pretty common for tackles. We're all expecting and predicting that he would have a, a great opportunity to win the job at right tackle. One thing that I felt was missing this spring uh, with the offensive line was competition. I didn't really see a push 
from the guys that were on the second stream or working I, I, with the second I couldn't agree team. more. I couldn't agree more. So it, it does make it a little bit hard to even judge the, the first team at times for that reason. But I believe that they're high on Austin Jackson as their left tackle. I think they're happy with that. And it's not so much that they're unhappy with Jalen McKenzie because Jalen stepped in last year and, and helped out when they needed someone and proved to already be a utility guy, but is lacking experience. And so if they can get a grad transfer and a redshirt senior, then that's preferable. And I think ultimately it can bring out the best in both guys because if Jalen wins out then okay you feel much better about him because he beat this guy out and if Richmond wins out well he has a lot of experience and you would expect a, a certain level of play from him so I think this potentially is a big deal for USC I'm not going to say it is yet because we haven't even seen him play and we haven't seen a lot of Jalen McKenzie either yeah and um I'll just reiterate or remind everyone that Drew Richmond was a, a five-star recruit in his class and was yeah. one of the top two or three ranked linemen in that class. Uh, now, I'll also add that I think that's one position group that the uh, the star system doesn't always correlate with. Uh, I've seen very highly rated tackles come in and just never quite catch on because that sport is is about so much more than size and strength and you don't really know a guy's true technique until he's facing college defenders. You don't know his true level of of will and and drive until he's going through a college-level program. And at that position, it's just so vital that 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 motor is there at all times. And this is not to say anything about Drew Richmond, because again, I don't don't know much about him, so we're going to find out. But you can look at that recruiting profile and star ranking as a sign of optimism, or you can say, well, that's that's years in the past, and um, all we really know is that he has a lot of experience at Tennessee. Yeah. So we're going to segue to a recruiting question. From P. Nelson, 627, would love to get an update and or understanding of strategy around the recruitment of Elias Ricks, Justin Flo, and Kendall Milton. So okay. I, I can talk uh, about Ricks. Or yeah, yeah I'm, you can start with Ricks. We've had a lot about him on the board recently, but Adam, if you just want to attack that. Yeah, I mean, they lost him about five months ago. And... Their 2018 season did them in, in in that respect, as it did with a few other players that we know. But Ricks has always had a connection to USC, and he initially figured that he would go there. And so I don't think that is totally gone. I, I don't think that would leave you, especially just growing up here and viewing the program as you would uh, in your childhood. But USC has a lot to prove. Uh, I think this is a big year for the secondary, the secondary coach who people are going to get acquainted with, you know, that, that aren't familiar with him. Uh, he was recruiting different guys, you know, at his prior stops. So I don't know that Elias Ricks has much of a relationship there right now. But there are people on this staff that know him well 
that have been in contact with him that have kept a, a you know a strong rapport with him and best they could through the bad times uh, that they've gone through in the program and and now now as, as they try to get healthy so I know that they're on him pretty hard uh, publicly you're not going to hear a lot of that and and that's not going to be the perception because he's committed to LSU which is I've said before, it's it's GBU right now. It's the premier program for defensive backs. There are a few of them that belong in the conversation, but LSU's number one. And they're still the betting favorite, of course. But I'm not going to count out USC. I just think that there are too many variables right now. I'm not predicting USC either. But I know that USC believes that they have a good shot with him. And yeah, those are from my sources that you know, they realize that they have a lot of, a lot of ground to make up. Um, they realize that they kind of, again, blew it in, in a sense. Not for a lack of effort, but for just lack of production. But uh, there's still time between now and when he probably will sign in December. And I, I, I expect USC to be relentless and do everything that they can everything in their power to keep him interested and uh and if nothing else you know they'll they'll be in it until the end and the reason that they do have a chance still is because as he told adam gorney when we had on the site today lsu could not take him as a reclassified prospect because they were all full and that was part of his initial impetus for leaving mother day um but it wasn't possible for him to, to reclassify into this class and, and be at LSU any earlier. The best he can do is be an early enrollee next year, which leaves open a long window of time. And he's reiterated that he's still going to take his five official visits, one of which is going to be USC. He, he told me that back in uh, January. He told Adam Gorney that this week. So USC is going to get an official visit from Elias Ricks and – they have a lot of time to try and change the narrative and to get off to a strong start next fall because he's already committed. So it's not about him committing elsewhere. It's He can't do anything now until he signs in December. Yeah, I, I know for a fact that he's a huge priority to them, which I mean, you would assume because of how good he is. But also, I mean, again, USC is not deterred by his commitment to LSU. They, they don't really care. And, and so I actually had someone reach out to me recently and tell me, we're working on it. And I didn't even ask. I mean, I, I've since asked more regarding the situation, but uh, it was brought to my attention that just know that we are planting seeds with Elias Ricks. Well, I, th- I think no one knows better than USC fans that uh, commitments can uh, quickly unravel. Why'd you have to go there? Well, it's just it's just very recent. It's the the, the wound's still it fresh. Still burns, man. Too soon. I know, I know. Um, Justin Flo. Uh, I went up to see Justin Flo Monday night for his first spring practice at Upland, and I was not alone on the sideline. As I got there, I saw LSU defensive coordinator Dave Aranda and Texas defensive coordinator Tyler Orlando side by side, watching his every drill. I saw Florida linebackers coach Christian Robinson there just to see Justin Flo. 
that's kind of the state of his recruitment right now. Everyone in the country wants him. He did recently narrow things down to a top 12 list. USC's on it. Uh, he told me that he's in frequent contact with Johnny Nansen and Clay Helton. Uh, Helton's very involved in, in this recruitment, which kind of speaks to the priority they're placing on Justin Flo. Uh, like a, I hate to even mention it, I'm going to bring up sore things again, but like a Brew McCoy last year, he's one of those guys that you watch practice and there's no doubt that he is going to be an instant contributor at the next level. He's as sure a thing as there is in this class. And my understanding from talking to him about twice now is that he's at the very least very open to USC. He feels a connection to USC, uh, whether it be in the hometown school, school that he's been aware of his whole life. But there's nothing they can really do before the fall to change his viewpoint or their standing in his recruitment. He wants to see them improve. Um, right. He, and, and this is like a lot of prospects, but, but he's, he's been as, uh, as blunt in saying it. You know, he wants to go somewhere where he knows from day one he has a chance to compete for championships and, and compete at a very high level. And if USC shows any signs of what they showed last year and gets off to a slow start, they're just going to be out of the picture. It's what's going to happen. Now, if they can turn the tide and come out with a strong start, even against that tough early schedule, then all of a sudden uh, they look like the USC of old enough for a guy that might have been very inclined to go to that program. Uh, now it comes back around and thinks strongly about it again. So it's, it's, they're, they're on him very actively. They're on him very consistently. They flat out told him, we think you can be a, a – one of the leaders on the, leaders on the defense right away. Uh, but until they show it on the field themselves, there's not much more they can do to win that battle at this point. Yeah, I mean, here, here's what they're doing. They are in a holding pattern. You're right. That's a good way to characterize it. They, are, they have to continue to keep him interested and keep him comfortable with them because he's another guy, uh, even more so than Elias Ricks, who was like all but guaranteed to go to USC at a certain point in time. And it's not that they've lost him, it's just that now like the door is open and USC's made themselves vulnerable to a lot of other programs. But if Flo had his way, right, in an ideal world, which with USC, a, a, a healthy, strong USC program, we're not even having this conversation. He's gonna be silently committed, basically, at this point, if it were a different point in time. Yeah, and the important thing is that they are in the conversation. And as he told me yesterday, I said, so what's a typical day like for you recruiting-wise? How many calls, how many texts? And he goes, oh, you know, a ton. My phone gets blown up all day. I said, well, we're talking like like 10 calls a day. He laughs. He goes, no, like like 40 for real. I said, how do you, how do you even deal with that? He goes, I, I, don't, I don't answer most of them. I don't return most of the calls. USC is at least – in the conversation to where he's talking to Clay Helton and Johnny Nansen on a regular basis and is, is is keeping them in play until they can either play themselves in or out of it in the fall. Right. Uh, and, and the third prospect was uh, the running back Kendall Milton from Clovis. I, uh, I'm hoping to get up there this month to get an update. I, I talked to him a couple of months ago, and I got the sense that the USC was – 
in the mix in a wide mix um i didn't get an overwhelming sense that they were in great standing but it's been months since i talked to him um he's a, a player at the top of my list for for this month to, to get an update from get some insight with and uh sadly i don't have a better answer for you at this point unless you've heard anything adam no not recently uh if you remember we actually ran a poll a few weeks back asking who would be your prized prospect if you could only have one of the following for the class of 2020 and all these guys were on it and Kendall Milton got his fair share of votes yeah and I, uh, I, I respect that I understand that coming you know this is tell back you but what I understand from his current recruitment is he needs to see what they're gonna do with the running back position and I I understand that. In fact, I couldn't tell you definitively what they're going to do. And we've talked about it at length, and it's more conjecture than anything because uh, we just have to see them play. And I don't know how they're going to utilize the running back. Maybe with yeah. a guy like him, if they had him, they would feature him. You know, I don't know. But uh, it remains to be seen how much they're going to run and what priority they're going to place on, on the run game. And... I imagine that will go a long way in determining, you know, how how much he wants to play at USC. For sure, and I, I will say that um, he's another guy that's just physically impressive. Like you just see him, you go, oh yeah, he's ready. Uh, he is a great pass catcher. Though. I, I I watched him play in seven on seven, and he was beating DBs down the field and catching passes as a receiver. Uh, very impressive athlete. Um, actually, it wasn't seven on seven. It was the rivals camp, but it was it was the the receiving drills. So he would fit in terms of being that three down back that USC wants. Oh yeah. But if if, if they do end up in a in a rotation that waters down those touches and carries, and if there's just not many carries to go around, I, right. I can definitely see that being something that turns him off when there's other programs that would have a more traditional use for running back that also want him. I, I guess the way I would say it is there are running backs in this class that I think are more likely to end up signing with USC. Yeah. Yeah. I think right now that would be <laughs> that'd be a fair assessment. Uh, we've heard that uh, that desire for a three down back at USC. And I understand maybe selling it that way, but if you want to win over a running back, it's about giving him the ball, not just playing. At, at the end of the game, they want to carry the ball. Uh, so I, that's where I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know how much they're actually going to run the ball and how much they're going to give the ball to an individual. And, and that's yeah. why I kind of lean in other directions with, with Kendall Milton. I, I, I would guess that he doesn't end up at USC. Right. Assuming that there's a carryover in offense from 2019 to 2020. What's interesting about their running back recruitment is is they're pursuing a wide range of styles and bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I know a guy they really like. I just talked to tonight. I'll have the story up uh, on Wednesday morning. Is Ty Jordan of the Mesquite, Texas, who put them in his top ten or top eleven, whatever it was. He's he's a, a smallish. Um, elusive speed guy, and they're on him uh, really hard, and he's 
really high in USC. I think they have a real chance with him. But he's a totally different player than Kendall Milton. And right. and certainly you you can bring in different types. But I, until I get up there to talk to Milton again, I, I don't know what their level of communication is right now with him. Yeah. Okay. We have uh, one last question. All right. From the Kyle R. Keener. Nice. Help me understand the scout team. My understanding is that they try to mimic the other team's playbook for the next game. Is that if this is true, do they really get a full year to learn SC's system? <laughs> yeah, you're gonna read the end of it. I like the last part. Oh, I'm totally clueless about the scout teams. I'll understand if you give this one to Rick. Thanks again. <laughs> he was invited to the podcast. He is not on the podcast. Uh, he's- I never know what he's doing. What, what's he, what's what he, he doing, doing back, back there? there? Yeah. He's, yeah. He's largely unaccounted for at all times. He's but making a meatloaf. Okay. <laughs> we appreciate your interest. Yeah. Um, I think we okay. can probably both answer this. I'm going to begin. Uh, so the scout team work is really contained within about, you know, a two to three month period, right? Um, or three months. But it, it is double duty for those guys. They need to study their own playbook and learn their own playbook and be prepared to execute their own playbook despite not getting a lot of reps and a lot of time practicing it during the season. Their primary responsibility is to, as Kyle eloquently stated, mimic the other team and what they're doing. And so that's what they'll do for the, the, the brunt of their week during the season, you know, leading up to that game that weekend. But uh, that's, you know, that they have to know both, basically. And um, and spring is not like that. There, there is no right. scout team. Uh, everyone's just out there. And they're all rotating and alternating. And, and training camp is the same way for the most part. It's really the final week or two of fall practice leading up to the season opener where you start assigning people to the scout team. And sometimes you play your way out of it. You know, there are guys that are on the scout team, but they're not redshirting, and, and maybe they, they win more time based on whatever, you know, whatever's happening during the season. And then they, they get called in, or they'll do both. I've seen guys kind of go back and forth between scout team to the regular team uh you know from one period to another in practice or or just be removed from the scout team altogether yeah and you know someone who is likely to contribute soon is probably not in that situation they're they're getting the reps they need and when a guy does get kind of like was chase williams on the scout team when he kind of got thrust up at times he's a guy that went that, that went back and forth yeah, but at that point, when they moved him to safety, that they also gave him a few weeks to really get acclimated to it yeah. before he was he was really utilized. Yeah, I, mean, I know it would sound or seem confusing, but typically the guys that are on the scout team are third string, and they're not involved or maybe they're limited to special teams, which they'll work on in practice. And, and and a lot of the work at that at that time in their progression is also maybe getting physically ready for a larger role. It's not yeah. it's not so much that 
those reps are the most important thing they're getting out of that first year. They're, they're getting their, their, their bodies ready and getting ready to, to try and compete for a larger role in the future. Yeah, I mean, the other thing to remember, too, is that practice during the season is not all team periods. It, they're, still, they're still drilling them pretty hard, and they're doing a lot of individuals, and, and, and there's no scout team at that point. Scout yeah. team probably makes up about a third, maybe even less, maybe a fourth of practice. Yeah. Good question, yeah. though. Good question. I, I, I like the Q&A format. I think we'll have to make this a part of uh, more future podcasts. I, I enjoy the range of questions. Um, we do want to do a, a recruiting-centric podcast coming up soon, too, where we'll probably get uh, Adam Gorney to join us and add his insights. But like I said a couple times, I'm excited to go on the road this month. We'll be in Arizona next week. They have a bunch of high school football showcases there. Obviously an area that USC recruits heavily. We'll be in Texas later this month, which has become a major focal point for this program. And something that they really sell. Like When they recruit a guy like Ty Jordan, the running back I mentioned, they really emphasize their Texas connections. And it's not just Graham Harrell and Mike Jinks. It's uh, the analysts they brought on. They have four or five guys that can claim real Texas roots, and they're definitely trying to leverage that there. So th- I'll get a lot out of that trip, and we'll have a lot of stuff coming this next month. So do follow along, and if you can't follow along, sign up so you can, trojansports.com. I'm Ryan. He's Adam. Thank you. Be good. Till next time. See you.